everyone and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 6, issue 280, Until Dawn. As always, you can play along with Cane and Rinse. In volume 6, we are covering the following games over the next coming weeks. Super Hexagon, Super Mario Kart, The Witcher 2, Assassins of Kings continues our Witcher series, Destiny, The Taken King, Rise of Iron, plus the two DLCs that we had after the base Destiny game will be discussed, and then Double Dragon Neon, Double Dragon 4, and Abobo's Big Adventure finishes off our Double Dragon series. Head to canorince.com for our articles, features, reviews, and links to our forum, Facebook page, and YouTube channel. If you do enjoy what we do, there are a number of ways in which you can support us. We have a Patreon. Support is always gratefully received. Please also check out our video game's music podcast, Sound of Play. It now stands at over a whopping 100 issues. And as always, feedback is appreciated. Joining me, Cal Moon, in issue 280 are Tony Atkins. Hello. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And Leah Hado. Good evening. So we will be discussing Until Dawn, the 2015 PlayStation 4 exclusive. It was developed by Supermassive Games, a small studio team based in Guildford in the United Kingdom formed less than a decade ago. And it's published by Sony Computer Entertainment, as you would expect. The game's director was Will Biles. And it was co-written by Graham Resnick and Larry Fassenden. Now, Larry Fassenden is the horror supremo that you may know if you're into your B-movie horror titles. The composer, Jason Graves, who, again, if you're into your horror, you will almost certainly know from his work on the Dead Space series, among many other hits. The game runs on the Decima engine. This is the engine that was created by Guerrilla Games uh, and can be seen in the trailers for the upcoming Death Stranding. And it looks Fairly stunning, as we'll discuss later on. And it uses the Morph Me animation middleware for all the facial animations. It was released on the PlayStation 4 exclusively. It was released on August 25th in the United States, the 26th in PAL territories, except for the United Kingdom. We had to wait until the 28th. So with that out of the way, we'll now cover our histories of the game. First up, Josh, what's your history with Until Dawn? Usually when we um, cover games... There's a lot of, you know, we talk about the excitement um, up until release. I think Until Dawn's like an interesting example of the opposite, where I feel like a lot of people wrote this game off when they first saw it at E3 and, and trailers early on. Um, it just looked like, it essentially looked like it was mimicking Heavy Rain, um, but with a slasher uh, setting rather than a uh, crime drama setting. And it, like some of the you know footage they used in the trailers look really cheesy, look really goofy, and everyone was like, ah, oh, uh, yeah. At least everyone I know uh, in my circles is just like, I oh, had that. It looks pretty, but it looks a bit stupid. So maybe pass on that. And then you know, on the run up to release, Sony had barely marketed it. Um, there just seemed to be no. Um, kind of upswell of interest on the lead up to the release date then reviews start coming out and you know opinions start coming out on the podcast uh, on the various podcasts that I listen to and everyone was like no guys seriously until dawn is worth playing i know i know we were all like oh it looks like it's going to be terrible it's going to it looks like it's going to be bad but the actual finished product is worth everyone's time. It is worth experiencing. And so it went from a game that everyone had just gone, ah, ignore that, to suddenly being like at the forefront of uh, a lot of people's minds and and uh, got uh, a lot more attention than I think uh, people were expecting. 
since then, um, since the kind of reviews came out, and re- I didn't buy this day one. I, I did wait for it to get a bit cheaper, but I, I was, you know, really intrigued by what people were saying um, in various articles and on podcasts and stuff, and you know, lapped all of that stuff up. Especially, the, there's a really uh, some really good coverage from Patrick Klepik on this, and Mark Brown uh, from uh, Game Makers Toolkit did a video about how uh, the game makes uh, basically puts you in the director's chair of a horror movie. Some re- the, this this game has some really good write ups um, all over the place, and I encourage people to go seek those out. And yeah, so basically all of that um, encouraged me to pick it up, Leah. How about yourself? So I uh, got a PS4 a little bit late. I didn't actually get one until after this game had already come out. And um, I, I, was, I wasn't I was really holding off in anything in particular. It was more just PS4s were expensive and I, hadn't, I just hadn't had the chance to really jump in yet. But I had seen a little, little bit of Until Dawn at uh, Eurogamer the year before it came out. And I, I think I told this same or a version of this same story on the uh, on the podcast for The Order 1886. But uh, there was a great big Sony booth and you could only do one. You had to basically take a ticket and go through the line again if you wanted to see one of these other games. I, it was uh, it was Until Dawn. It was The Order 1886. And I think there might have been a third thing in there. I'm not, I, I don't remember Black that as was much. One. <laughs> oh, was it? Oh, God. Hence why okay. the key was so big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I I actually ended up going to see The Order 1886, but um, until very recently, the game that I uh, really, really got the most out of was Until Dawn, um, and I knew most of what was going to happen before I went in because I had actually watched a fair amount of video on it. Uh, probably most notably, there was a, uh, a Giant Bomb East uh, play date where they went through the whole thing in a, in a few episodes. And um, I, I watched that and it became kind of one of the reasons that I actually really, really wanted to get a PS4 after that. Uh, I've always been very into horror movies and horror games, and uh, this seemed like a really good one. Uh, so I picked up my PS4 four uh and i did end up paying i i I don't remember what the exact date was but it must have been pretty close to the release um i think it was like the fall after the release of until dawn and um i picked up the console until dawn final fantasy type zero and uh, i got a free copy of destiny with it as well so um that was that was my ps4 initial purchase uh and ended up playing it uh pretty closely after i had purchased the console and uh, have have gone through some parts of it a couple times since then. Tony, how about yourself? To echo a bit of Leah and Josh here, actually, I, I was at that same um, event that Leah was and um, mm-hmm. I didn't play until dawn. I got to play The Order. I remember hearing about all the streams. This seemed to be a, a game that kind of took the internet by storm. Certainly, you know, streaming obviously is a big thing by the end of mid-2015. So a lot of people were talking, a lot of people were streaming. It, it seems to be like a, a streamer's dream game because... Obviously, the audience can interact with them as they make decisions, and you know that's that's a perfect scenario for them. So I remember there being a lot of hype, but actually, I, I didn't get around to playing it until August last year. Um, seems to to me that seems a weird time to play this game because I think of this game and its setting. It reminds me very much of a, a more kind of wintry Christmas setting. Um, so playing it in the middle of summer didn't quite make sense, but um, I was playing it with Carl actually here. We uh, Carl came down to visit. 
And uh, it was one of the games we kind of just cherry picked out uh, that we'd sit down and kind of just whistle away a few evenings to. And uh, it was a fun experience. We uh, we did kind of pass the controller. Um, the game, although it's not really explicitly kind of set up like this, is split into kind of chapters. So we would pass the controller after each chapter and see how far each person would get or the decisions. And we'd have arguments on the sofa about the decisions that each person was making, whether it be to our own particular liking. But it was uh, it was a good fun way of actually playing it. So uh, that's when we played it initially. And we'd probably talk about that uh, because one or two of us made decisions that maybe the other didn't quite agree with <laughs> towards the end of the game, which may or may not ended up in some deaths. So my history with it is one of intrigue with the developer. Now, I've got a soft spot for supermassive games, and this stems from graduating from university in 2007. And in 2008, Supermassive Games were one of the few companies that ever offered me a chance at an interview coming out of uni. <laughs> um, and th- that was obviously gratefully received as a new startup company. So from that moment, I always looked in on their material. Uh, they were primarily formed as a PlayStation Move company which is not my favorite kind of game and when until dawn was originally shown it was developed as a first person ps3 move title and it was you would control a torch obviously it was horror inspired still uh, and you could choose between the eight characters and move sort of point to point and it didn't interest me at all Uh, that's just not my kind of genre and then it disappeared completely it got a short clip at an e3 and it looked better. It was clearly more game-oriented at this point with their third-person camera moving around, and I was a little bit excited for it in the same way that I was excited for Heavy Rain and the same way I was excited for Beyond Two Souls and that I really want a story-driven narrative game that I enjoy. I, you know, I, I'm a fan of the genre. I'm just not necessarily a fan of the products that we've had from it. And... So I kept out and I was thinking that this might be a good hit if it goes for like that real ridiculous B-movie horror style. And then they showed it again and they seemed to be going for this very uh, straight-faced horror experience and it turned me off completely. But it's sort of in the same way that Josh mentioned, he became less interested and it, sort of the, the release came out. And um, as Josh mentioned, Patrick Klepek did a, a write-up on it and it was really positive and people on Twitter were starting to be positive about it. A game that I was excited for in that genre and sort of completely switched off from ended up turning my attention back to it. Uh, but I wasn't in a position to buy it. Thankfully, a friend loaned me the title. Um, and I decided that as I was going to go and stay with Tony for a while, it might be a perfect game for us to play and pass the controller. So it's 18 ages in a cabin. It's perfect horror movie fodder. Now the plot it goes as in 2014, 10 friends, Sam, Josh, his twin sisters, Hannah and Beth, Mike, Jessica, Emily, Matt, Ashley and Chris. It's not overly important at this point to be able to remember the names. We'll go over the characters again later. have gathered away at the Washington Lodge on Blackwood Mountain for their annual winter getaway. During their celebrations, a group of them decide to play a prank on Hannah, knowing that she's romantically interested in Mike. Mike invites Hannah up to his room, but unbeknownst to her, Jess, Emily... Matt and Ashley are hiding in the room. As Mike convinces Hannah to start taking her clothes off, Jess reveals the presence of the group and by doing so, humiliates Hannah. 
Hannah runs out of the lodge and into the snowy woods, upset and embarrassed. After learning that Hannah has been humiliated, Beth, Hannah's twin sister, chases after her and finds her deep in the forest, where the story takes its first dark turn as the girls hear a violent noise and run from an unseen pursuer. As they're cornered at the edge of a cliff, Hannah slips and falls whilst holding Beth's hand. Beth manages to hang onto the large branch at the edge of the cliff, holding Hannah, but as the unknown pursuer crouches to the end of the cliff, Hannah and Beth both fall to their deaths. I would just like to add that uh, every horror that uh, gets perpetrated to these characters <laughs> after this is deserved because of this uh, this opening. I, I I do think like what happens to Hannah is unbelievably cruel, and I cannot believe that any of these people are. Uh, uh, her friends like this is a massively nasty prank to pull on somebody yeah this is it's really terrible i mean it's a, it's a good setup in a teen horror movie way i love these kinds of movies like i just yeah. like bad slasher horror movies and i i think what what really endears this game to me so much is that it does a really good job of setting that particular situation up like some of the writing and we'll we'll talk about it specifically but like some of the writing is not the best but it works in this context it doesn't matter that it's kind of cheesy and kind of bad in places because in a teen horror movie the writing is kind of cheesy and kind of bad in some places so i i thought that it fit the setup is good in that it gives you a reason to sympathize with these characters because you know you're trying to keep them alive you don't want to watch anybody die except that you kind of do because they're kind of all bad yeah. people in a way <laughs> yeah and it can be argued how bad they are maybe they don't deserve to have their jaws ripped off but they're not good people like this is not happening to complete innocence here yeah exactly when you go back, look at the the writers you know graham resnick and larry Frenstein, mm -hmm. he's you, you look into their their kind of the background research of them and they're both b-movie writers you know that they've made films yeah. about killer fish you know it's we're at that level and it and it that's kind of okay like they clearly understand the genre and they i think they're just having fun there they are having a real kind of good fun laugh with the audience it blends that line between taking itself seriously and clearly being ridiculous enough to fit into b-movie horror rather than primetime horror mm. whilst being influenced by other sources i mean i'm not saying that this is sharknado of horror movies but it, it definitely has those moments where i think as as the player you're left wanting to roll your eyes and then sort of the know that and 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 with the flow of the game with the introduction it kind of works with also the gruesome deaths to sort of uh top yeah. it all off because we all love a bit of gruesome death we're kind of moving into the topic of just talking about yeah. the writing in general and and i just because we're here um I coming into this podcast, I was really, I really, really worried that I was going to be uh, accused of hypocrisy uh, because um, I really like until uh, spoilers. I really like until dawn, and um, I don't disagree with the comments about the dialogue and the writing being slightly awkward. But how can you like it after the hard time you gave uh, Life is Strange <laughs> in uh, uh, not so long ago, Josh? The thing is, like. Until Dawn knows exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, there's an intentionality behind the way this is written, the way the characters are drawn, and the whole scope. Like, and, and the genre that it's in as well. Like, 
Life is Strange, when I'm comparing Life is Strange to other examples of the fiction that it exists within, I'm comparing it to Donnie Darko, I'm comparing it to Little Miss Sunshine, I'm comparing it to all these indie, weird um, films or sci-fi films or stuff like that. And just the the bar is just so much higher in terms of the writing, in terms of the character, characterization, all of that stuff. Whereas here, what I'm comparing it to is Friday the 13th sequels and Halloween sequels and stuff like that. All of these films are aware of what they are. They're schlock, they're... They're, part of the enjoyment is watching these people die, as horrible as that sounds. Like, part of the enjoyment is the horribleness that's about to occur and kind of making you hate these people so you feel okay with the horror that's about to be unleashed upon them. And all the way through until dawn, it treads that line really well. Like, it, it's not trying to be alien. It's not trying to be the thing. It is trying to be those slasher movies that I mentioned, and it does a really good job of being that. What's interesting as well, it, it asks you to play out some of those cheesy teen horror movie scenes, and, and we all go over them. But actually, you know, uh, challenged uh, as a player, challenged with what you know from the horror genre and what you expect from the horror genre, it's a different scenario being put in those horror genre scenes, and sometimes they play out, even as you would expect them to do in the film, but you're the, the cause and effect of those scenes. It's, I'm not going to bash on uh, Life is Strange. We've done that show. But uh, it is funny that you know we have three people from that Life is Strange show um, sitting on, on this panel. And we have very different feelings towards this written game because I just think it's a more confident, self-aware um, written game rather than Life is Strange. I'm not saying that the writing is better. I'm saying that it's more appropriate. It can be bad because it's supposed to be a little bit bad. Like, yeah. I, I think that's that's the real key is that it knows, well, like, like everybody has been saying, it knows what it is and it does a good job of carrying that off. The ability that you're now rotating between eight characters and you've got all the little micro stories between these characters and the developments that are happening uh, in this environment allows it to free up a little bit that, that when perhaps... And a story arc may be starting to become a little bit stale. It can move on and sort of refresh, and it allows you to sort of cleanse your palate with a new character tale. Um, and and the characters are pretty different, and the, and there is a room for growth for at least some of them over the story. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how full of praise will be for any of them, but there's certainly a tone that's set that something like Life is Strange or uh, I mean, Heavy Heavy Rain did it with multiple characters, but again, that's flawed. Uh, we covered that in issue 100 for anyone who wants to listen to our Heavy Rain episode. Um, and, and it's often a flaw with these heavily narrative-driven games that things tend to overstay their welcome or it becomes a little too repetitive or there's just too much of any one thing. Whereas with this, I always found the ability to change between the characters tended to become at roughly the right amount of time. So before we go any further, I think it is pretty important that we now really introduce the characters um, and where they come from and, and their histories and how they're involved in the story of Until Dawn. Uh, now, there are numerous of them, and these are all uh, real actors that were motion captured. So first, we've got the character Michael, who was played by Brett Dalton. He's known for playing Grant Ward in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Mike initially comes across as being self-absorbed, somewhat vain, immature and an all-round stereotypical jock. However, over the events of the game, he emerges as a brave and resourceful, putting his own life at risk to help his friends and trying to ensure the others' survival. 
Initially, I hated him and wanted him to die as soon as possible. (laughs) I went to high school with guys like this and it, it, mm, no, I did not. I, he grew on me across the game, but initially, no, I did not like Mike at all. Yeah. Same. I mean, he's, he's really complicit in that, uh, opening prank so yeah at first i was like you know mike no no thank you uh you can die um but yeah he does show himself up to be you know quite brave and quite resourceful as the game goes along i don't know if i would call him he's not fascinating he's got very <laughs> basic drives and goals and and all of that he he Sex. He serves it's a sex. Pe- he wants sex. to have sex. He, he, he wants That's to have sex. <laughs> yeah, he wants to. Well, he's a teenager. Well, yes, he is a teenager. But come on, people are complex. Um, but anyway, um, and I, I think you know something that I'm going to say um, for all of these people. I do think the performance is really good. Like mm-hmm. it's not. Let, let's you know. Don't get me wrong. This isn't HBO. This isn't. Mad Men or uh, or the Wire, we're to, you know we're talking about here, but like it does feel like you know a kind of middle you know mid range budget like TV TV performance, and it and it and that's kind of fine for what what needs to be done here. So yeah, Mike, he's all right. It's also quite funny if you're watching the documentaries that uh, surround this game, they actually even come on the disc um, and you, you look at the performances of the, the actor versus the performance in the game. And, you know, Michael is one of those characters that looks identical outside of the game as he does inside the game. Yeah. I.e., he's kind of like this chisel jawed, you know, stereotypical American kind of jock guy. Clearly he's got a lot of intelligence and he, he's, he's, you know, a decent actor, but it's interesting to see that kind of performance portrayed back into the game. And I actually also say that Michael's one of those characters that actually is given enough time to have somewhat of a story arc in here. Early in the game, actually, you can play Michael as a, a real proper jock. You know, he can, you know, slap some ass. He can, um, you know, be kind of a bit mean because he, he's dating a, a, a girl in the game called Jessica. He can be quite mean to her, actually, at times. Um, but equally, if you play Jessica as uh, this quite strong-willed character, you can have her throwing snowballs at him. And he and he becomes a bit more of a kind of grump like okay like i'm sh- i should be the man in this relationship and, and maybe that yeah you need to hang back a bit and actually when it gets down to the part where there's a you know there's a scene in, in the cabin where he's trying to i'm not going to say force himself on her because that comes to the wrong connotation but he's trying to have some happy time <laughs> with jessica he can be a little bit kind of more kind of subtle and gentle or equally in in the game you can be a bit more kind of forceful towards her so I think that it's an early indication actually in the game that you can play a character in you know in a in a different style and I think having gone through the game a couple of times now uh, and messing around with the different choices you can actually make the you know the people in 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 the game narrative be like you know substantially different than what they could be if you just chose you know an independent route it's interesting that you brought up that uh, the the scene in the cabin with Jessica uh where they are having romantic fun times it can go very differently depending mm-hmm. on how you play either of them, how how you have Jessica reacting and how you have Michael reacting. So I, I did not replay Until Dawn. I actually watched another playthrough of, of Until Dawn because I wanted to see uh, some different choices that were made. And um, my playthrough, um, 
it it was a little bit different in the in the playthrough that I watched most recently. It um it was going very well, and Jessica was very into what was going on, and she had all of her clothes off. And uh, in my playthrough, she was more reticent, and I'm not entirely sure what I did differently. But she did not take her shirt off for me, which was uh, you know, I think very the shirt, sad. But the, the shirt scene become depend if you scare Jessica enough that she falls into the river, river, and then which case she needs to take her clothes off to dry off. Um, which uh, yeah, of course, um, <laughs> if you, there is actually three. Decisions yeah. um, utilizing the butterfly effect mm-hmm. mechanic that the game uh, utilizes. That if you make the correct decision, correct, incorrect. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Correct necessarily the uh, <laughs> correct term depends on on her level of clothing. If if she's down to sort of a bikini, um, you've made a very specific series of choices. I felt a little bit better about that. the way that I did it because eventually she's outside and it's very cold. And yeah, I mean she. Didn't survive very long for me, but um, still, at least she was warm. Yeah, moving on to Jessica there for a second. Um, you know, in, in that scene, you know, she's been portrayed as you know quite this self confident um, girl, and actually, if you play that scene differently, she comes across as look. Actually, you know, this is you know a facade of a uh, of me. You know, I, I'm not really this kind of really self confident girl. I'm actually you know a quite nervous woman that <laughs> that you know needs a little bit of time when it when it comes down to get you know getting down to this. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. That scene can play out a number of different ways just by, you know, at that point, relatively, you know, small choices. Your major plot points more often than not are going to stay the same. Um, and that will it, it seemed to me. And of course, I have not seen all of the uh, all of the potential ways that the story can go. But it it's more a case of of lifting out sections from certain characters if they happen to die in the course of the story than it is that the story actually takes a different turn. Mm. So there are characters, and Mike is one of them, who are going to survive up until pretty much the end no matter what. Um, Mike is going to survive, Sam is going to survive up until pretty close to the end. Now, you can get everybody killed in this game just like you can have everybody survive, but you can't have a game that only lasts an hour. Like You can't get everybody killed right up front. It's more interesting to me, I think, to see the ways, the more subtle ways that scenes like that will play out. Um, Another one that I can think of is if you are playing as a couple of characters that we haven't talked about yet, if you are Matt and uh, Emily, and you're looking in uh, the tram station, in the, uh, the kind of lift station, and you're trying to get in, but the door is locked, and there's a window that's cracked. And if you have been nice enough to Emily before, when you point that out and say, hey, let me boost you up there... If you've been nice enough, she'll do it. If you haven't, then you have to do something different. So it's it's just the little things like that that I I find to be uh, potentially more interesting than who gets killed off. I mean, that's 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 interesting in its own way. But um, I, I think that the plot that itself is going to be pretty much the same no matter what. So those smaller moments are are what uh, what got to me more. There's a similar thing between Christopher and Ashley as well that you know depending how you interact with those two characters in the game, which they're trying to force you together. But it, you know if you don't go down that route, there's there's a, a you know well eventually Ashley doesn't actually let him back in the house. So it's um, definitely it, it's interesting that those smaller decisions or what seem as smaller decisions actually have a, a bigger effect towards the end of the game. Is there a way, um, I, I'm not sure if any of you know, is there a way that you can turn off that butterfly? Because it's when you make a choice that will have an effect later on down the line, you do get a um, kind of a little 
graphic up in the window that shows you that the butterfly effect has taken effect. And it's basically, to equate it to a Telltale thing, it's basically the so-and-so will remember that. And I know that in Telltale games, you can turn it off so you don't really know when you've just done something that is either going to help you or is going to screw you later on down the line. Is that something you can turn off? I don't think it is. Uh, it mm. was definitely something you could turn off in the first Walking Dead, and then it's been enforced yeah. ever since, which I think is actually a shame. I would rather the whole illusion be kept, you know, kept from me. I'd rather that like butterfly effect thing just be something in the background. I know in the options you can add stuff. You can add a um, a percentage meter to people's decisions. I mean, they literally, it's an overlay on the screen that says 50% or 20% chose this route, 80% oh, yeah, chose this route. That. And, that, and that, that's really distracting. Yeah. Like, I like to know after the, like, to, to come back to uh, Life is Strange, I liked looking at those decisions after everything mm. was over and seeing who chose what. But at the time of the decision, I don't want to know. I I, I kind of like having the, butter, the butterfly effect or the so-and-so will remember this, but I would like to see it as an option as well. Like, I think that it would be a little better... Of, as a choice than as a, uh, a mandatory thing. So Michael, I described him as uh, interesting. He's the character who gets isolated for the longest period of time on his own. He's the one that has interactions with external sources in the form of a, a dog. And then he comes back to the house. So I've, I've always felt like Michael was interesting because he's the one that you're spending the largest period of time away from other members of the group. That payoff for me helped me grow to his character. I, mm. I think by actually understanding how he behaves independently from everyone else is how you can grow towards a character who, when he's with the group, is pretty detestable. After that, I kind of grew to, I'm not sure I would say like, because I can flat out say I don't think I particularly like any of the characters in this game. That's not a knock against them. I think that's pretty intentional. We, we, we are set up with the original prank that anyone who's involved they really shouldn't be your friends anyway. We we do have time to grow with Michael independently, and I, th I think that helps. So the next character we've got is Sam. She's played by Hayden Panettiere, uh, known for playing Claire Bennett in Heroes, and she's described in the game as diligent, considerate, and adventurous. I would say that Sam is the only character that I actually was invested in keeping alive <laughs> throughout the entire thing, which is interesting because, like, she can only really die, like, right, right, right at the very end. So I spent a lot of energy in those moments with the slasher trying to keep her still and stuff, not realising that it was all for naught because she was going to survive anyway. But yeah, like, I, I think Sam, it's not that she's a particularly interesting character. It's more that she's just the least horrible person. Although she was, you know, the sister's best friend. She wasn't, so, she wasn't yeah. um, complicit in the prank, though. She was. She tried to stop yeah, it. Yeah. No. So, then, you know, that's her redeeming feature, yeah. right? Now, she, she seems the most kind of, I'd say, everyday, level-headed kind of person. Played really well. I thought voice acted very, very well. Known from my wife would come in and and go, oh, it's it's her from Gracetown. <laughs> Back to the you know recognizing characters. I liked her, and I, I you know she's actually not huge. She's in one or two scenes, but yeah, she 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 doesn't have the lion's share of the scenes. But um, yeah, you know, I I think she's well played. So she's the most innocent of the group. So she's the character that you're playing at the very start of chapter one after the prologue of the incidents and the introduction to why everybody is going to the cabin in the first place is played on her phone 
um, whilst she's traveling there. And you start to sort of meet the, the other members of the group as Sam. So you immediately are left with the impression that she was the main character. Uh, she was at the head of all the advertising for the game. She was heavily pushed as the E3 character to the point that I actually thought they'd drop the multiple character playthrough and that she would be leading it all entirely. I mean, she's very recognisable. Um, she was the cheerleader on Heroes. She's often on TV because uh, she's married to Vladimir Klitschko, for example. So she's very in the media in for multiple different reasons. It was always kind of strange seeing this character because I personally didn't recognise five of the characters that you, that you play as, five of the teenagers. But she seemed so far and above everyone else on status uh, that it was it was kind of strange when I changed away from her, uh, and that, and that was really kind of interesting for me. For someone who is so prominent in the marketing, she's not exactly missing for a large chunk of the plot, but she's kind of not there as much as you are almost led to think that she will be, which is fine. I mean, she she has a, a significant role. It's not that she's not there, but. Um, for a lot of things happen to her friends and potentially a lot of people die while she is taking a bath. That's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It was just a little surprising to me. I was expecting to yeah. see more of her being center stage um, just based on what I had seen previously. She's kind of the safe character uh, and she definitely can die um, and did spoilers in my playthrough, but um, she's kind of the, uh, the girl next door type that you see. She's the one that's going to survive until the end of the movie. It's actually funny because, the, you know, there's a lot of um, things that happen to these characters you know, as we go through. And, and some are a little kind of over the top or a little far-fetched in, in the places that they may die. But actually, one of Sam's, you know, it's a scene they used a lot in the marketing, is that she's having a bath and a, a masked figure comes into the room and kind of watches over her and then moves back out the room. And just as he shuts the door, that's the moment that she realizes that somebody's presence was there. It's a really good scene. Um, it's a, you know, it's a well-worn horror genre scene, but I think it's one that I could actually relate to a bit more about someone's here. And that's essentially, you know, she is then stalked through the house. And that's, for me, it's one of the best scenes in the game. It's just a little bit more realistic than, you know, being chased with the mind by an unknown being. And it's it's Sam that has the vulnerable moments in the basement of the building, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, which is the first time that you ever feel that she is under threat uh, as a character in the game. So we also have the character Joshua. Now, Josh is played by Rami Malek. He's known for the lead role in Mr. Robot. Uh, he's the brother of the twin girls that, that died in the prologue, and he's a year later getting everyone back together because he thinks it, it, it's better to have them all there and, and to sort of have a good time whilst getting over the, the, the events that had happened. Um, he's described as thoughtful, loving and complex, uh, but has struggled with the disappearance of his sisters and thus wants to get his friends around him. Um, and it, it's his family's cabin uh, away in, in, in the mountains. So yeah, I think Joshua is definitely a complex character in the game. Like convoluted character might be a better a better word to describe <laughs> him. We might as well get it over with now. It turns out the whole first half of the game is of his creation. He is the uh, pretend slasher killer 
of the uh, of the you know first half of the game. He's the one setting up these weird saw like contraptions and and all of that stuff. And a lot of it is just smoke and mirrors. No one's in actual any danger, and this is just like him getting revenge. Uh, or basically revenge for his uh, sister's death, uh, sister's deaths because he basically blames the rest of them for for what happened. I don't know what to feel about Josh uh, in terms of his performance because Rami Malek is an actor I really struggle with because every time I look into his eyes, like there's nothing there. Like he's his he's got very cold, dead eyes as an actor. <laughs> Are you trying to say that he's the uncanny valley of actual actors? No, but I know what he means. It's um, it's one of the things I have with Cillian Murphy as an actor. Like he's a really good actor, but there's something about his yeah. look and presence that slightly unnerves me. And I had the same thing with with Joshua in, in this game. It's from the very start. You're like, I don't entirely trust you, and I, I have no reason at this point not to trust you. But you're just slightly off. And I mean that's that to me is a, a good thing in, in the case of you know, quite often Cillian Murphy's performance and actually Mr. Robot the same case. But yeah, in, in this game from the outset, he he seems like he's not entirely all there. Well, I think that that's understandable in this particular case, regardless of how you feel about him as an actor. In the prologue, you don't see anything of Josh. He is not actually there when his uh, when his sisters run away because, yeah, he's he's passed out drunk or or at least you think he is. Uh, you find out later that maybe he knew a little bit more that he was letting on. So but in, in this particular situation, he's it's only a year after both of his sisters have died and he's. I think that it is, even before you know how messed up he truly is, it's understandable that he'd be a little off. Uh, he's he's still coping with this. I mean, it's it's only a year after that has happened. And if you take everything that he is saying on surface level, which at the beginning you don't have any reason not to do, it seems like he's trying to cope with something that is giving him a really hard time. And... You know, obviously it is it is more than that, but I did not find anything off about the performance. There is certainly something off about the character, but I think that that fits in this particular context. But, uh, he certainly has a character arc. But that's interesting because certainly towards the end of the game, you know, you do start to look at him as, as a character that has clearly, you know, he's got depression. Um, there's heavy, heavy hints of schizophrenia. There's all sorts that are going on in his mind. And, then, you know, it's very, it, it does a, a job at the, the, the towards the end of the game of being very explicit about entering him as a character and seeing the things that he's seen and seeing the world that mm -hmm. he's inhabited since the death of his sisters. And, and you know, he's a complex character, I think, before his sister's disappearance. But after it, it's the thing that maybe has pushed him over the edge. And although you can never justify what his motives were <laughs> towards the characters um, in the game, there's that still kind of like, well, I can maybe see how you got there in your own world of how you just wanted to show people, you know, the suffering that you felt um, and the terror. The largest part of Josh's story is actually sort of in environmental clues mm -hmm. around around the cabin. Um, it is his family's cabin. His family were special effects experts. Uh, there are audio logs of him practicing sounding like the uh, the masked invader. 
There's his medical records. There is a lot there if if you're willing to go looking for it. Uh, interestingly, he's also the only character who cannot survive. That's not true. Is that not true? I'm pretty sure I read everywhere that he 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 is a guaranteed death. He does he does not die. He he becomes a Wendigo if you uh, if you get the right oh, thing. Yeah, no. I counted that as <laughs> a death. Okay, <laughs> well, yes. If you're counting that as a death, then yes, he has to die. But he can just straight up die. He can be killed by the Wendigos. But yeah, if you find and my say for his head cap getting popped. So. Yeah, so no, I, I saved, well, saved, air quotes, but um, no, I, I actually ended up um, finding, I, I believe it's his sister's diary, uh, and then he gets dragged off by the thing that used to be his sister and becomes a Wendigo also, so um, I, he technically can survive, kind of, but no, you're right, he's, yeah. he's not going to be a human if he does. Josh said that uh, no character's ever in threat, but he does punch Ashley, I believe, full in the face. <laughs> knock her unconscious uh, which is a little bit aggressive uh, and a bit out of character and it was a moment that after the um, twist I didn't really understand because the whole thing was to intimidate his friends and to scare them but to actually punch one full in the well, face Well see the thing weird. is that he's he comes into it thinking that that's what he wants to do that he just wants to make them all YouTube stars and um, you know and make everybody feel as terrible as his sister felt when they and I think that what happens is it's just that he went too far because mm-hmm. he actually does have these mental issues. So he thinks that he is doing something that's not actually going to harm anybody. And maybe it wouldn't have if everything had gone right. But he didn't think it all the way through because he has he has problems. He he you know, he is mentally ill. And this is far from the most sensitive treatment of mental illness. But it's not again, it's not supposed to be it's supposed to be, you know, crazy horror. But it, in that in that situation, and it made sense to him at the time, he wasn't trying to be a killer. He wasn't trying to it just got out of his hands, yeah. which anybody could have seen coming in the beginning. And, you know, if they had known what he was doing, but he couldn't see that because he, he just, he was starting off with nothing, nothing to really hold on to. So we also have Christopher played by Noah Fleiss. Uh, He's known for the film, Josh and Sam described as protective, charitable, and curious with a witty sense of humor. He seems to have trouble confessing his real feelings towards his crush. This guy's such a boring character. (laughs) Like if he didn't wear glasses, he'd be completely forgettable as a, as a character. I think, I think his relationship with Ashley does create some kind of interesting tension. Like the one scene where they're both strapped to chairs and, basically either kill yourself or kill her that's a great little moment and then the butterfly effect that occurs from that where ashley will either let you into the hut or not that's a great moment Mm. um but as a character on his own i think it's really odd that so many things seem to come back to josh wanting to cause him problems wanting to cause chris problems because Chris doesn't seem to be one of them. I mean, he he's definitely complicit. Nobody is is completely innocent in this, but he's one of the less complicit members of this whole thing. It seems like putting him in the situation first where he has to choose whether to kill Josh or Ashley and then whether to shoot himself or to shoot Ashley. It seems like he's being centered on a little bit. It is bit actually too much. funny when when you start to dissect um Josh's motives here. Christopher and Ashley bear the brunt of it pretty much when you actually think about he sends off michael and jessica off to uh the lodge i mean he doesn't know there's a, a you know a stalker out there he doesn't know the wendigos are out there that's going to pull jessica out of the window so it seems like 
every setup he had was for the character, you know, almost um, just those two characters. It, it seemed quite odd that other people didn't get affected. I mean, even, you know, Matt, he wanders off and, and you know, they get caught up in the in a tower and pull down. So, yeah, it, it's it's odd when you kind of dissect the game in that way. I actually quite liked Christopher. I, I enjoyed his introduction to the game when you meet, meet him at the top of the cliff before the cliff lift and you do the, uh, the, the shooting gallery. I also really enjoyed his moment as the monk, which is maybe the first potentially terrifying moment in the game that I remember. He's sort of, he's the nice, oh, he's not slightly funny, funny guy. He thinks he's funny, but he's not no, he's funny. Dad, he's dad kind of funny. It's it's the kind of okay, funny yeah, that I, you know I do yes. to my yeah. children. Yes. You know, <laughs> so we've also got Ashley, Christopher's crush. Uh, she's played by Galadriel Steinman, known for her role as Gwen Tinnison in Ben 10, Alien Swarm, described as academic, inquisitive, friendly, and cheerful. But as the night progresses, she also becomes increasingly distressed and scared. I kind of had the inverse reaction to Ashley that I did to Mike. I started off liking Ashley, and I kind of went downhill with mm, Ashley as it went agree. on. Completely the same, yeah. <laughs> she starts out as just like a shy, slightly introverted girl, and you're like, you know what? I can get on board with you. You're you're all right. And then increasingly her decisions just become more and more self-centered. And you're like, oh, wait, you're not introverted. Mm-hmm. You're just selfish. You're just a horrible person. She ended up dying uh, for me in what uh, was, in retrospect, like a really stupid death. Um, so I fell for the the scream, you know, the scre- you know, the cries for help, and oh, uh, going going do down that? to the trap door. And, and that is such that is a brilliant moment because it's such like a classic horror movie trope. I think one of the the key strengths of Until Dawn is it it tests your film knowledge. Basically, the the more you're aware of the tropes, the more you're the more likely you are to survive the end of the experience. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a great little a great little thing where it's basically horror movie trope survival simulator, um, which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I fell for that and. Like, honestly, like, I thought about, you know, I, for a second I was like, do I care? And I'm like, no. Okay, next character. You just get killed by a Wendigo if you yeah, send her down there? Get, yeah, she, yeah, her head gets ripped, ripped off. off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, th- this is, this is, I mean, we've got a great story between me and Carl with Ashley is that, you know, we were we were playing, as I was saying, the controller, past controller. It was, you know, it was really good fun. Uh, and Ashley was our first death. Um, and it was under Carl's kind of guise of the controller. Now, we sat there at that noise coming from the door, and I think it's, is it Jessica that you think may be down there? And Carl was convinced that he needed to open that that hatch, and I said, that is clearly (laughs) a trap, like 100% a trap, don't open the door. And we sat there, Carl looked at me, he said, I'm opening the door. I said, don't do it. And, you know, of course what happened, (laughs) a head gets ripped off, and it caused one of the most kind of the funniest kind of, we're both in in hysterics, like, I'm having a go at him, like, you finally killed somebody, we've done so well here. Uh, And Carl's like swearing, like, well, you know, (laughs) it was bound to happen at some point. Ashley survived for me, she was one of the few. Yeah, it was a good (laughs) moment. I made her survive my second time through because um you know i i knew that that hint but um yeah it was it, you know it's like you say uh, josh it was a it's a, a movie trope that it's it's easier to fall for for but yeah it's it's funny when it happens did she die or didn't she die in that instant in the game and we've actually got some feedback by telepri on the forum 
who said, uh, the game made me think differently about characters in the horror genre. So many times I've watched a movie or read a book <laughs> scratching my head in befuddlement as to why characters would do such silly things. Yet in Until Dawn, I was making the exact same mistakes. <laughs> I could cast blame on the completionist side of me that wants to see and do everything, but I wasn't that concerned with 100% completion in Until Dawn. Rather, I think it was just curiosity and maybe a bit of hope that weird, <laughs> that hand-waving would just give me a high-five <laughs> for being awesome rather than attempt to dismember me. It is the oldest trick in the book, yet in that moment I thought, I have to do this because I think it's playing the trick that we all know it's the oldest <laughs> trick in the to book beat the and trick. won't be. <laughs> <laughs> and they won't fool us that way. And, and that's ultimately exactly what happened. And that, that was the first character we lost. And, and a year later, Tony hasn't let me forget it. <laughs> it still comes up. Yeah. So he's, he's taken it pretty personally. Yeah, okay, um, I just text you, like, you know, open that trap door, mate, see what's behind there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I quite liked Ashley as a character. She was the character that I think I became attached to the most as I was playing, and I was desperate for her not to die, so for her to die on my watch was particularly heartbreaking, um, <laughs> especially for something so ridiculously stupid. So we also have Matthew, played by Jordan Fisher, uh, known for his role as Seacat in the Teen Beach movie. <laughs> and Matt is described in-game as motivated, ambitious and active, but also as having low bravery. Possibly a bit of a pushover, especially when it comes to his new girlfriend, Emily. Yeah, he's a bit of a wet cabbage, this guy, isn't he? Um, I, I, I do think he's um, he's memorable, but he's kind of memorable because he's so pathetic. Like... <laughs> Um, one sequence that really stands out for me is the bit with the deers where you're confronted with the deers and every, like, I can't, so I didn't attack the deers, but that's because that is the most sensible thing you could do when confronted <laughs> with a huge herd of deer. What you want to do is make yourself small and just show you're not a threat and then let them pass by. But I, I, I watched the the choice um, on YouTube, the choice someone made where they did choose to attack the deer, and it's so like limp and silly. He's just like, oh, I'm gonna chop the deer, and he's and he kills one of them, and then the the rest of them immediately just sh shove him <laughs> off the cliff. I can't imagine not seeing that coming. Like, do you think they're all just gonna run away? It feels like Matt is a new new member of the group, like all the way through. Like he doesn't really belong. Yeah, in this yeah. little clip like he's trying he was there at the beginning he was but there he, at the beginning which barely I barely see him which I didn't know yeah. the first he's time he's the one through. with the camera yeah no I, I didn't know that the first time through I only picked that up the second time through and it's really weird because he's, he seems to be at every time trying to impress everybody or trying to be the guy that steps in to help everybody out and in fact this second time I played the opposite Matt which was he was a bit more kind of like standing up to Michael and, and kind of you know beating his chest and as the character, it just completely didn't suit him. It just didn't. I don't know what it was about. Maybe his facial features or the the performance of the actor. He just actually still came across as a wet fish in those scenarios. It it just didn't suit. Him. It almost felt like somebody who was trying to play the hard guy, but secretly was really just you know a nice guy through and through. The one moment where he can sort of stand up for himself is if he decides to ditch Emily um, from the falling tower which I didn't do, but I've watched playthroughs of, and it does make me laugh that you can just ignore her asking for help because it's so out of character for everything that, that he is in that game. He's very uh, self-conscious. I didn't enjoy him as a character, and I was secretly hoping that he would die just because I didn't 
want him to be around anymore, which seems awful because I really <laughs> should have wanted to save everyone. It's but I just did like, not take it's to deliberate. Him. Like it's okay. The game wants you to hate these people. Um, <laughs> I, I think he had. He has by far. You know, feel free to disagree with me, but I think he has by far the most gruesome death sequences of any of the other characters. Like the two I'm thinking of are him being dragged across the floor and then being hooked through the lower jaw and then drowning in his own blood, which is horrible. That's the one I got, yeah. And the other one, <laughs> the other that. one is where um, the Wendigo pins, pins him on the floor and then instead, so every other Wendigo death is some form of head ripping, jaw ripping, like, you know, some kind of decapitation or removing of something. In, for him, the Wendigo just slams its fist directly on his face and his skull caves in. And it's just the most horrible thing in the whole game. And it's brilliant. These deaths are never sort of assumed deaths. It does actually show you the deaths oh, yeah. and they are gruesome. Except in the Japanese version of the game, every death was censored. So I feel like they really missed out on the impact of these deaths because they are wonderfully over yeah. the top and gruesome at times. I wonder how and, they were censored. And Matthews censored. spectacular. That's like, I wonder if it was like literally black bars type yeah. of censoring or just they just <laughs> didn't show anything and you just, because that would have, that honestly would have actually ruined some things for me if the scenes were just missing because I kind of came to the realization that if you don't see somebody die, then they're probably not actually dead. So if, yeah. if you never see somebody well I, I don't know if it would have ruined it but it certainly would have changed it well it does happen in the game that you get cutaways that mm. don't lead to deaths well, yeah that that's what I'm saying like, you, would, you would assume mm -hmm. in the Japanese version would be death so yeah. uh, uh, for the impact of Jessica for example yeah. they're probably dead set that she's actually dead when she gets dragged through the window so as we've covered Jessica earlier, we'll go straight to Emily. Now, Emily is played by Nicole Bloom. She's known for her role in Shameless, and she is sort of bold and forthright and very opinionated and very susceptible to many, many, many deaths. For me personally, she was the character that I think you were meant to dislike from the off, and I really liked her. So I, I, I kind of took to that forthright opinion because I knew I wasn't liking any of these characters, so I might as well attach myself to Emily for being so... Uh, she didn't try to hide the fact that she was a bit horrible, a bit mean. She's sassy. <laughs> I kind of have a similar opinion of her in that, like, she is horrible. Like, let's let's not you know, beat around the bush, but yeah. she's more honest about who she is than everyone else, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, everyone else is a bad person pretending to be a good person. Emily's just a bad person uh, through and through, and yeah. I weirdly respect her for that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there uh, she has some, like, really gruesome deaths as well. I don't think anything quite as gruesome as um, having her, uh, you know, Matt having his uh, face caved in, but, like, there's that grinder where, that she can just fall into. And, oh, God, Like, yeah. she, she can have her eyes gouged out. It's really, like, the game really is out to get her. Um, 
yeah, so she but, lived for me. Yeah, <laughs> like she, and that's the that's the hilarious thing is that she ended up she ended up surviving for me. And when I was you know doing research for the podcast, I was really surprised by how many opportunities she has to die, and I managed to avoid every single one of them. It's a beautiful game if you actually look behind the curtain. Once you played the game through once or twice, if you actually do some research and look behind the curtain and actually see when each character can actually die in which scene. It's actually quite an eye-opener because there's a number of times that I just assumed were just scenes that I played out and nobody died and nothing would have been an issue. But actually, you know, one or two of those characters could quite easily have died a lot earlier than they either died in my playthrough yeah. or I got them through the game. Uh, and it's quite an eye-opener to, to, to see how many times if I just, I guess, not achieve some of the, the QTEs or just, you know, picked poorly on decisions a lot earlier, how... You know, I, I guess the, you know the quickness of my playthrough could have been you know sped up by a you know a couple of hours here or there by entire scenes being missing from the game. I mean, all in all, there are a potential two hundred and fifty-six different permutations of the ending. Wow! Yeah, uh, but that's, depending that's like, on at what times people die. Yeah, that's, that's the same as Fallout Three's. You know, just change one separate scene here or there, or the you know the very end of the game when there's the interview section. Yeah. You know, who's there and who says what. The obvious moment I was thinking of for Emily was uh, towards the end where uh, you're playing as Mike and he really does not want to let her stay because she's been bitten and he thinks that that is how they turn and you have a choice to either shoot her or not. And I did not shoot her, but I mean, can you actually shoot her or is it one of those false choices? Oh, wow. Okay. I kind of figured you could. Straight in the eye. Wow. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, if you really don't like Emily, you can take it out on her. And the last character we're covering for now is Dr. Hill, which is played by Peter Stommer, uh, known for his role as Gaia Grimsrud in Fargo, Nihilist Number 1 in The Big Lebowski, or Lev Andropov in Armageddon. Um, Very recognisable, and he plays the psychiatrist who talks to the player between the chapters. I'm kind of a sucker for anything that does that plays to your choices the way that this does and it's super obvious about it like when he's asking you what you're afraid of if you're picking spiders over snakes then you know that you're going to have spiders showing up later on i i was i tried to be as honest as i could <laughs> in those in those decisions um knowing that i was going to have a bunch of spiders and needles showing up later on but um i yeah, I, I'm a sucker for any time it does that. And I think that he did a fantastic job. I, I really liked that framing device. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it it's never as clever as, say, the mechanic in Silent Hill Shattered Memories mm. in how it sort of reads yeah. it and plays the impacts throughout. It's very, it is very obvious, uh, the decisions that you're making. Yeah. But it also, for me, his introduction as a character did a very good job with the pacing between chapters. It was... It almost plays out as like a previously on connector between chapters whilst reading through the information and it becomes deeper and deeper as the game uh, progresses and you you realise that he's actually the psychiatrist who's been talking uh, with Joshua. Um, He's actually treating Joshua since the death of his sisters um, and he's actually losing control. Like he can't fight through Joshua's battle and, and Joshua's getting worse and he seems lost in his actions that no matter what he's doing it's becoming more and more distant and that element was really impactful for me is he a real person because i kind of took it as he was all in josh's mind the whole time as i see it he was actually in the records Mm. for for the doctors that have treated him because uh you realize that josh has been treated since the age of 11 um he's had problems long since before his sisters had died uh and 
the disintegration uh, of Doctor Hill and 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 the world that he exists, his office starts breaking apart. Mm. For me, was uh, as Joshua started to really lose his grounding in the reality that he existed in, um, and that was sort of the separation between him and the Doctor, and the Doctor was unable to sort of bridge that gap anymore uh, and Josh had gone too it's far it's well played as well because I, I think at the start of the game it's it's odd like yeah okay well who is this person yeah who is he talking to and it's almost fourth wall breaking because you know they mention oh you're playing the game and you you kind of think well is, is this directly referencing me and my actions and is this stuff coming back because of the choices I made the one distraction I had here he seemed his face was over animated yeah, very much so almost to fight this uncanny valley kind of thing that they didn't want to just leave a motionless face, so they went too far and over-animated Peter Stomer. And it was kind of weird, because I'm looking at a guy who I instantly recognise from two of my very favourite movies in Fargo and The Big Lebowski. Yeah. That's kind of cool, but it's also drawing me out of the world. And then he's seemingly got these really strange facial movements that I found were pulling me away from the game rather than being able to sort of embed myself in and enjoy I don't think it's only a problem for for Doctor Hill within that case. I, you know, we can we can talk about the visual style and the effects. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, now is a perfect time to do so. You know, we've run through the characters um, a fair bit, and yeah, one of the the reasons why these characters are impactful or not impactful are actually the performance capture of the faces. Um, you know, this isn't anything new. You know, we've seen it a number of times. Yeah, Elle Noir, for instance, is you know brings to mind because you know although the you know the bodies there weren't captured in the way that they were within this game, it was very much a lot of focus on the faces, and it has it has a little bit of uncanny valley going on. But you know, they they do a lot of work with the. Um, with the eyes, mm. etc., that you know, actually, you know, there's a lot of kind of teardrops within the eyes. It's, it doesn't have that dead eye syndrome. But like you say, you know, Doctor Hill is the absolute. He's just over animated. Well, he's not over animated because his performance is captured, you know, by dots upon the face. But it's just, it's too expressive. It's too teethy. Yeah. Too a bit, you know, presented to the character in that kind of, you know, Shakespearean way, and it's just. It it could do with just drawing back a little bit. I think in Doctor Hill's case, it's kind of goes with that kind of psychiatry. You know, someone really pronouncing and speaking to you. But occasionally, when it happens within the you know the main characters of the game, it it throws you a bit off. That okay, these aren't you know people I'm following. They are just computer generated people. The animation for the most part is eighty percent of the time. The animation is incredible. Like I think the the facial animation is really really impressive. Um, for most of the characters. I do agree that Peter Stormare is animated, his facial animations are <laughs> a bit over the top, but part of me feels like the director just told Peter Stormare to go all the way and the animators work with what they had. Um, so that doesn't bother me too much. Um, but like, it's the fact that, like, I mentioned R- Rami Malek having his cold dead eyes. That's not a criticism <laughs> of the animators. In fact, that is, you know, they captured his face <laughs> dead on because Rami Malek does not have a soul and they captured that perfectly whereas yeah the other characters do have a soul so that that difference is uh that, that's clear to see but yeah I, I i think um like out of all of the kind of games in this vein you know the the you know walking dead life is strange 
heavy rain. This oh, is the most visually yeah. impressive um, by some distance. Probably not my, uh, you know, there are games that I prefer the story of. There are games that I prefer the characters of and et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of pure visuals, like this is incre- like an incredible piece of work. I would sit sometimes and and just kind of look at the screens that you get when you when you pause the game, you know, just to look at the facial animations. So when you're on the pause screen, you can control the face um, and the and the eyes with the right stick. Have them look around one angle if you hold right, because they're always on the right hand side of the screen, sort of looking left. When you hold right on the right stick, the first time that one of the characters looked directly <laughs> at me freaked me out because it was it was like the actor was singling me out in particular uh it was kind of like the following eyes of the mona lisa in that regards and that was kind of strange and obviously the visual style of this game a large part of it's to do with the decimer engine uh this is an engine that was formulated uh for this generation of consoles the first game we saw it on was Killzone shadowfall and it's it's sort of grown from there now that's not to say that no work went on the artists because this is a game that goes for realism in in its appearance and in going for realism by missing it slightly can completely kill the look of a room. And there were times, particularly later on when you're in sort of the basement areas, that I would look at Tony and Tony would look at me and it was like, this just looks like a movie at this point. Mm-hmm. This, this bit is ridiculous yeah. because the lighting mm-hmm. was so on in parts of uh, that game. Yeah, I was, I was about to jump in and say part of it is... Um, like there's an expert use of lighting in this game. Like the, yeah. it's not just kind of the quality of the textures and the animation. It's the way shots are composed, and they mm-hmm. benefit from that. You know the Resident Evil, you know the classic Resident Evil thing. You don't have control of the camera. It is pretty much fixed in one position, and there are a lot of situations in Until Dawn where that's the case, and they get to create these really, you know, visually. Um, compelling shots in the same way that Resident Evil Remake does um, throughout that game. And, um, yeah. I think a lot of this helps with someone like Laren Frinson and Gary Rennick that have made films, you know. Th- yeah. You know, I, mm. It's very hard, actually, because we've talked a lot about, you know, they are two very different mediums, films and games. But actually having somebody, you know, present a, ga- you know, a film-like game being a film director there's some shots in here that are just brilliant that there's um you know there's a couple of ones which you know jessica being pulled out of the window i think is a <laughs> it's a really great shot of yes like, oh, one how does she fit through there but wow like the terror on her face as she gets pulled through but also yeah there's there's shots um long in the distance you know running through woods um you know shots from above kind of like the structure of a building you know running through the you know the top half of a, a drain pipe uh, and watching characters run through like it there's some really clever camera work in this game it just sells the idea of it being a movie as well as a game also there's in the in the documentary stuff presented on the disc there's uh, there's some scenes where they show it being both lit you know being dark and kind of moody and spooky versus the room being lit just as a plain kind of you know um you know daytime room and the difference is incredible it doesn't look like the same place so they're really clever in the way that they present you know the the you know the the cold outside versus the slightly warmer interior and then the slightly warmer interior getting colder as as the day goes on um you know it's it's very very artfully done actually in in a game which is uh, essentially a horror title and i don't think you can underplay the value of having people like graham resnick and larry fessenden on this project project and i'm not saying that larry fessenden is wes craven (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination but this is a guy who is an actor and a director Mm. and a writer and a screenplay writer and they screenplayed this game 
So they were able to have that effect where they could actually tell this is the angle we want it filmed at. This is the mm-hmm. lighting. This is this is what it should look like. This is what it should lead into. And that, if you've got someone that involved in horror who understands what makes horror horror involved in a project, you can go really far and, and showcase uh, and really bridge that gap between games and movies. And I think that's something that was so well done in this game. You know, there's a lot of conversation recently, not so much recently, but like the last few years about how games should stop, you know, stop borrowing so much from film. And it's not so much that they need to stop borrowing so much from film. It's more that they kind of need to learn the right lessons from film. And I think Until Dawn's kind of a really great example of like something that is very much, you know, I feel like, you know, we're comparing it to a film a lot. It is a get like... No part of this is uninteractive. Like, this is a game through and through. You're not just, it's not, you're not going to be stuck in a Metal Gear Solid situation where you're just watching a cut cut scene for 90 minutes. You are always engaged with what's <laughs> going on on screen. But it, it takes the right lessons from film, like using visuals to frame a situation in the perfect way, to create emotion through um, lighting, through visuals, through framing, through composition, rather than just characters telling you how to feel or, you know, or or just, you know, long exposition scenes or something like that. Like it takes the right lessons from film. With the, with the story underway... Uh, we understand that we've got to discuss the gameplay and how it actually feels to play, which is the big differentiation here between the movie and the impact of having movies on the game. So uh, right right from the onset, we are informed of the butterfly effect, that it will have a big part to play, that your actions uh, will always have a reaction down the line. Even the smallest choice can have the biggest consequences. How did you find that the butterfly effect, did, did it actually have an impact to how you played the game? Did you actually feel like your choices were having effects so as I, you were playing? I don't know that it, I felt that. I, I, I did. I, I felt that they were having effects while I was playing it. But I don't know that I realized how much of an effect that they could have had until kind of later on, until discussing it with other people and finding out how different some of those choices could be. The only thing that I really kind of found off-putting is that they hammered home the butterfly effect thing so hard. It starts off with your introductory cutscene that literally shows a little light going down a butterfly's wing and taking all these different turns. It's like Life is Strange ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I liked Life is Strange. I don't, but um, no, I just, Hannah's tattoo is a butterfly. Like it it really just, it it went a little bit far on that side for me. But the, the actual, the actual integration of that mechanic itself, I thought was really interesting, but mostly in retrospect. Like I said, I, I, I did feel that I was having choices that, that mattered, but it only really became fascinating for me after I heard from other people exactly how how much it can affect what happens. I think symbolism aside, um, I think the blood fire effect really worked for me. Um mm-hmm. Because it was subtle enough, I know. I know you had the kind of the butterflies that shot off the side of the screen, and you know that's not subtle. But by which time I'd already made my choices within those characters, so I didn't feel like it was actively, you know, changing the way I played the game. I made the choice, and okay, I was like, okay, well, that's going to have an effect on the gameplay eventually. But I think the way that it had small subtle effects on the gameplay, and then towards the end of the game, had the effects of essentially either putting characters in peril or characters 
you know, put them to their deaths. I think, you know, it, it wasn't there necessarily at the start, but towards the end, it was clear the choices are made. And, and certainly on the on the second playthrough or watching other people have, you know, their own playthroughs, um, you can see, you know, the full extent of the butterfly effect. And I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a drag now. I, you know, I hate the butterfly effect in the way that we talk about it because it's come up twice in, in a number of weeks. But I think in, in this game in particular, it's it's more subtle in the way that it presents it, mm. even if, you know, symbolism-wise, it's, you know, it's pushed a little bit too far down the player's throat. From my enjoyment of drama, I like the idea of characters and and people making choices that have consequences that they have no conception of in the moment and having them, you know, pay off, you know, ages down the line. Um, and that's something that doesn't not... So it happened... One of my favourite examples of it in the medium is The Witcher 3. Um, I think The Witcher 3 does a great job of having your choices kind of um, sit, uh, you sit for a while and you not fully grasp why um, that was important until later on and this is another great example but most games don't do this most games make your choices immediate like most games make your choices happen like the consequences of your choices apparent right from the word go and I really really like that Until Dawn like uh, draws stuff out a little bit longer it does a great job of making things not feel predetermined obviously they are predetermined but I like the idea that I have an impact on the way that this is developing, even if I don't know what that mm-hmm. impact is. I like the idea that you can sort of look behind the curtain and see what impact you've had uh, through the through the story where you look at your totems, the past stories, and the butterfly effect mm-hmm. impacts. But I would have liked to have looked back at that and said, oh, that's been triggered now without having known at the time. Now, I don't mind seeing that it's happened whilst I'm playing the game, not presented to me. Let me go looking for that in in the back end system. I think one of the things that really helps this game is that it was just a game release. You know, that it's presented in some respects that it could quite easily have been a piece of you know downloadable content as a you know a, a separate you know pay for each episode as it comes out, and it it really feels like you know they could have gone down that route, and I think that really harms. Well, for me, it can harm a game. I think a lot of the Telltale stuff I've played, where a character you avoid their death. But almost like it's predetermined. Well, if they you avoided their death there, they still can't be a part of the story because we've kind of ridden them out. So like two scenes later, mm. they still die. And you're like, well, did I? Yeah, oh, I did was prevent them from dying a little bit. Where here, you really feel like, well, I can push someone towards the death or I can get them through all the way to the very end of the game because it's just one piece of kind of overarching narrative that hasn't been broken apart. And, you know, people's ideas haven't always come through to the very end. So I like the fact that, you know, Occasionally, I could make a, a poor choice, but still actually get somebody through if I've changed my mind halfway through. You know, and that comes to the, the QTEs as well, which I think is a it's a sore subject, right? It's, you know, QTEs and games. It, with, I feel like we've been told that they are a really bad thing, and you know, just taking away the control of the player. And I, I, here, I feel like they they you know they justify their place pretty well. You know, I. I I feel like I've made choices where, you know, let's just listen here where I, Emily could have gone through the meat grinder. And I, and I know exactly that QTE because it comes up on the screen really fast. And I managed to hit the, the square button just in time. And there's a death that was presented, you know, prevented from, from my actions. Here's the thing about QTEs. I don't think people dislike doing them. I think people dislike having to do them again. That's the part that irritates people. <laughs> and because on... 
in until dawn like you only have the one chance to get it right you don't there's no repeats there's no going back it lends the the QTEs an impact that they don't have in something yeah. like Resident Evil 4 or God of War and also when you fail it's almost part of the experience like it's part of the fun to accidentally get some of them wrong and have a character die or trip over or hit a lamp or something like that yeah. and and it all just flows together and th- and that's why I don't mind the QTEs in this style of game because it also sets the rules at the very start doesn't it yeah. you know, this this is how your interactions with the world will be and we're not going to you know drift from this we don't change the the rule set halfway through so i think a lot of action games where you've you know you've been controlling this character slaying slaying the demons of the entire world and then the end boss is a qte it's like what pardon i don't mind qtes if it's a game that's built around them which this one is i mind qtes when it's a game that is not built around those that is something completely different and they're just kind of shoehorned in i felt the same way about asura's wrath like there's most of that game is QTEs, and that's okay because that's why it's built. That's how it, mm-hmm. that's how you experience that game. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's just when they feel out of place, and here they didn't. What Josh said is exactly how I feel about it. It's the finality of your events. If you mess up that QTE, that that's it. There is no repeating it. I recently, prior to the recording of this, played through uh, the Telltale Game of Thrones game, and it's you fail a QTE, your character dies, but then sequence restarts it's like ah so your character doesn't die yet but he, yeah. you, you can only die when they want him to die mm. other than that you've got to suffer through these QTEs until he doesn't die when you think he could die until we want to kill him and in this if you mess a QTE up that character could die because you know uh, and it's set to you that these characters can go at pretty much any point and particularly on your first playthrough you never know when that is so you're on edge so there is a consequence to not getting them right or to making the wrong decision. And that is where they stand out. There is a way that each one plays out, but neither of them is a game over. It also presents the player their own kind of choice. That, you know, Quite often you come up to a wall and you say, you know, jump or climb safely. And you're, you're kind of addressing the situation where you're like, well, you know, Jessica's been you know, chased through the wood. I need to get through to her as fast as possible. I'm going to jump. Now, you can do either, and actually it doesn't really change how that's going to affect. And, and, and what it actually does for me was it seemed to either allow you more time to hit the QTE or, you know, the, the jump sequence to QTE to be super fast. And if you felt skillful enough to progress the game that much faster, then you would go for that. But actually, if you were kind of a more of a, a, you know, a slower gamer, you had a kind of an option in some of those scenes to actually just progress that way and a bit more safe, almost like the character would do. Yeah, spoilers. If you go slower, she dies immediately. Yeah, if, you keep, <laughs> if you keep going slow, I mean, I, I tried in a couple and, and, and buried it up and, and nothing came of it, but I imagine, yeah, then if you keep going slower, maybe that does. Um, the, the other thing as well, this is, um, and I like this, and I don't normally like motion controls in games that are suddenly from nowhere, but there's a few scenes, and I know we've had some correspondence which you know didn't necessarily work for another person, but for me it was great. There's a, there's a few scenes where you have to hold the, the controller completely still, say when Ugh. there's a Wendigo that comes right up to your face, and they play with that so brilliantly because they try to scare the pants off you to make you jolt or do a loud noise or do something just to jolt that controller. And it seems unfair at the time, but I, I like the pressure that that got put in. And I remember playing it, you know, with both Carl and me sit on the sofa and kind of almost looking at each other and trying to tease each other to drop that controller or do something that's going to get one of the characters killed. 
It's so sensitive, though. Like that is that is actually <laughs> yeah. Because I I did the first couple. I think you have to do it uh, three or four times. And I did the first few okay. Uh, once I figured out, you know how they they give you kind of a um, a test Warm-up. one. Yeah, exactly. So you so you know how without any real consequences how this is how this is going to work. And I failed the last one. And the reason that I at getting two people killed in the process and the reason that I failed the last one was I had the controller. I was not moving. I was holding my breath. My heartbeat was enough from where I had the controller <laughs> that it shook the controller enough that it came outside of the lines. So, so it's Sam super right sensitive. End and you got Mike killed. Yes, yeah, Sam and Mike died me, yeah. because of my heartbeat. <laughs> yes. So another um, major element of the gameplay is the totems that can be found. They are a series of collectibles in a range of five different areas, showcasing hope or death. There were signs of warnings of of events to come um, from either yellow, black, green, red and blue. These were, you didn't have to pick them up, uh, but when you did, it would show you a glimpse of a potential event to come. Perhaps it was a fire that you would think might have an effect. And I'd always forget about them time that the actual scene would happen. (laughs) And and I I remember a time where it showed you like a bear trap in one of these clips and myself and Tony being on edge for about five hours of gameplay waiting (laughs) for this bear trap uh, and not quite knowing. And I thought these were particularly well done because uh, collectibles can be a bit hit and miss for people. I'm a fan of ones that are implemented well. And I always liked the idea that if I picked one up and saw something, it didn't oversell where that event could happen or how it could happen. But in the back of my mind, it was that if that character's involved, I know that I should be on edge when I'm controlling them and it could change the decisions that I was making or make me second guess myself. Did, I, did anyone else enjoy the totems? I did not like the totems as much. I, I, I didn't I didn't dislike them, but they kind of felt unnecessary to me. And I think that the reason for that is that it felt like there was really nothing you could do about it. it it's supposed to be, in many cases, a warning as to what's to come or kind of a, a foretelling of what's to come. But for the most part, uh, like you mentioned, the one about the bear trap, for, for example, by the time you actually see the bear trap, it yeah. is too late. There is nothing you can do. It's interesting in retrospect that, hey, you saw this thing beforehand, but I I kind of felt like the flashes of the future that they give you are not enough to act on. So I'm not sure that they had the intended effect, not for me, at least. We've got some feedback on the totems from Tadinho, and he said, the story aside, what really made me love this game was the gameplay. It's weird to say that for a game with so little of it, but it's the small gameplay touches that really elevate this game above its peers for me. The most obvious thing is the entire choice aspect and how it shapes the story. And it's true that all the characters can die and they can all live, depending on your choices, but simply putting it like that would be very lazy. Important choices aren't obvious in this game. And in fact, the ones that uh, hardly matter, it's the little choices that are important. For example, simply moving a bat to a different location might help you later, or closing a door can save a life and attacking a squirrel may have catastrophic consequences. It doesn't stop there, however. The game gives each character stats like bravery and humor as well as their relation with each other and can play the game and you think it didn't matter at all but you'd be wrong like all the other choices in the game your dialogue impacts your stats which in turn subtly impact how your characters react for instance depending on matt's stats and his relationship with emily he may get a flare gun and may not use it right away which can later save his life and ashley and chris might have very different relationships 
all characters have this, and it's just another layer that shapes the game in many ways that you might not even realise. To add to your choices, the game introduces the totems, which are a genius addition. The devs knew that the instinct most people would have was to try and keep the characters alive, so they gamified that and threw a collectible in to show a bit of the future and can help players to make the right choices in a dilemma. The secondary consequence of the totems, however, are the to play with the player's expectations. Once you start to see visions of people dying by fire, you start to get very wary in every scene uh, that there's any form of fire involved, which once again feeds into the story in keeping the player guessing at the edge of their seats. The last gameplay touch I want to highlight is the don't move sections. These sections were some of the most tense and frightening moments I've had in, game, in a game in years. The concept might sound like a gimmick, and it might have been in any other game, but here they work perfectly enhancing the tension of certain scenes and putting you right there with the characters and their struggles. And just to counter that, we've got a point from Mechner, who said that this was my first ever Platinum Trophy, and God, how I regret that decision. <laughs> the unskippable cutscenes are largely to blame here, and that damn don't-move-your-controller mechanic. Nearly having all the kids saved on the second playthrough, only to have Sam <laughs> struck down in front of me, and then the game not saving my second play uh, through choices, reverting to my first playthrough choices, making me have to replay the entire game nearly fully through again, had me at my wit's end. So definitely seeing both sides of the spectrum when it comes to the don't-move mechanic. Mm. Like any decent horror, there's a twist. We're almost expecting a twist at some point. Uh, we probably didn't expect the scale of the twist that we got. though. That, that, that's where this game really surprises me. So it plays on many different twists uh, until you get to the one that I personally didn't see coming. The first major twist point is that Josh doesn't get cut in half uh, and, and that he's actually playing a prank on his friends. I personally remained insistent with Tony that Josh wasn't dead. I thought that it was a strange way for him to go. With the special effects background of his family, which you see so many points, it, it couldn't possibly Yet be the case. you open up a door with a woman crying behind it. <laughs> it's like, your, your movie knowledge. It could have been Jessica, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> another is that um, Dr. Hill, as we mentioned, was Josh's psychiatrist since the deaths of his sisters. This starts to play through gradually towards the end of the game. He isn't, in fact, engaging the player and the game that you're playing isn't as you the player it's the game that josh is playing with his friends it becomes clear you see more and more the camera starts to pan down and you see a cap wearing person in front of the psychiatrist and then it's clear that it is in fact josh that he's speaking to which, which is quite subtly done uh, that that josh is in fact haunted by visions of his sisters uh that the mental illness side of him starts to come through in the end that he's in fact been unable to be treated he's schizophrenic and receiving the wrong forms of medication from the doctors and that he's filming this as a youtube clip to put on the internet which is actually given away in the very first introduction when he puts the video and he, he says friends and fans and i didn't even pick up on that the first time that i played it through and it was only the second time when he introduces his video that starts to make sense. There are a lot of things going through that Josh says and does in the beginning part that yeah. that really kind of it, it's interesting to go through that a second time knowing what what he turns out to to do in the story. I yeah, he he definitely has a lot of uh yes. a lot of tells foreshadowing. It it's told subtly enough for me to actually appreciate it more on a second mm -hmm. playthrough and not be a dead giveaway the first time yeah. which is quite 
always a tricky, isn't it? Some it's, sometimes you see the the twist coming a mile off, and other times you just don't. When Josh got in half, well, cut in half, and then it was revealed that you know Josh was the person behind it. So I thought it was it was a clever little twist. You know, I hadn't seen all the signs coming. Um, they're there to be seen, and uh, and I do like the fact that you know it's it's down to once again down to some you know mental health issues, and I think you know it's. Mm. It's a it's a clever enough twist. I mean, the the game then goes into a different direction, and that's not the only thing. Um, but you know, I think if the, if the game was based just on that, I, yeah, that's not so bad. Yeah, I I liked this twist. The second twist, I mm... this is the twist that I didn't see coming, and it's the twist that I didn't enjoy. And it's that Josh isn't the real villain, the real real villain. It actually goes supernatural, and that Wendigos are in the area. And that the stranger that was in the with the flamethrower that you see in the very prologue of the game wasn't the character that you see in the clown mask or the scarecrow mask. Uh, that that was in fact Josh, and that the stranger was protecting the area from the Wendigos as part of the uh, Indian reservation tradition. And the stranger is in fact the writer <laughs> and actor. Larry he looks Fessenden. like a crazy old man in the game, and then you see him realise he looks like a crazy old man. You're like, yep. Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> And and where this gets really interesting is that in 2001, he actually wrote a movie called Wendigo. And what, what's actually interesting uh, in regards to this twist that I didn't see coming is that my cousin, who watches a lot of Let's Plays, did see this coming because she reads a lot of stuff up on Wendigos um, and, and the supernatural uh, and that ilk. And she clicked on immediately from the very start of the game that it was actually a supernatural thing. And before she'd even finished the playthrough and we were talking... She completely like blew my mind. Was, and there is there is obviously enough subtlety that if you're up on that, that you can sort of pick up on that as well. That it's not a crazy, yeah, it's not actually a crazy twist because the clues are there. But I personally didn't see it coming. But much like the Uncharted games and 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 the likes, when things go a little bit supernatural, I don't really like it. I don't have a real problem with the the way that the story played out as it is written. But I think that I would have preferred a story that stuck with a grounding. And by that, I mean that I think that everything with Josh and how his mental illness is spiraling out of control. And even this stranger who thinks that there's something out there, I think that it almost would have been more scary if there's nothing actually out there except for other people. But this guy thinks that there is and he is willing to defend it, maybe to the expense of these kids in the cabin. You know, I, I, I find that kind of setup scarier. In that regards, we we do actually have some feedback from Minor Willie on the forums, and he said that if he had one real criticism, it's that it felt like too big of a tonal shift from the first half of the game to the second. It felt like watching two different episodes of The X-Files, and personally I've always found the Monster of the Week episodes around disturbed, psychopathic, but fundamentally normal people to be more scary than those that are around the supernatural uh, creatures from Native American folklore. For me, the game was never actually scary during most of the first half of the game. For me, it was just kind of schlocky fun. When the Wendigos were introduced, that's when that was the first time the game actually became tense and scary for me. Personally, for me, like the movies that scare me most are stuff like Alien, stuff like The Thing monster movies it follows stuff like that the exorcist doesn't do much for me so ghost ghost stories don't do much for me and slasher films don't do much for me either serial killers i totally get where people are coming from when they say 
you know, slasher movies, serial killer movies, they scare me more because it could be real. It, mm. it could actually happen. And I get that. But the abstract concept of a person killing another person doesn't scare me. Of course, it would terrify me in real life, but the, like the in in fi- in fiction, it doesn't terrify me as much as the animalistic terror of these creatures. And I think they did the again. I want to mention the animation. The animation for the Wendigos is really really good. Um, they have like this insect-like movement, like they have the jittery, like cockroach movement that triggers something primal in my head, like the, you know, like, I feel like I'm back in the jungle trying to avoid tigers or something like that. It's it's really terrifying, and, and I think they, yes, yes, it is a bit of a dramatic tonal shift from what happened before, but it goes from a game that's like really campy and silly to, mm-hmm. to genuinely quite terrifying, uh, for most of the second half i don't think i was ever terrified by this game but i I do agree with your points josh i think if the problem is if you take away the wendigo element you're left with uh, josh's kind of revenge on the characters but even even then like he's not out to kill anyone he's just out to scare people yes he may punch some people in the face but he's out to scare people You, you would end up in a scenario where his traps would have to go severely wrong or the players chat you know you know, choices would have to be okay in this instance. I'm going to not choose Josh here. I'm going to choose, you know, the opposite character. It's not scary at all to you guys that somebody is so <laughs> dangerously unhinged that he thinks he's playing a prank when there's a saw and dead bodies involved. A hundred percent. But he's not out to kill his friends. He's out to scare yeah. his friends. So I think, you know, the Wendigos themselves, if you actually look back, you know, when I think about so many of the deaths, they're to do with the Wendigos. It's not to do with Josh. It's to do with, okay, I got that wrong. A, a player's character's face was pulled off or slammed into the wall or even towards the end of the game, I switched the light on with the gas there to kill the Wendigos. And okay, it had a consequence that killed half of the people that I was trying to save throughout the game. But ultimately it was about the Wendigos. And it gets even weirder when you when you start digging a bit deeper and you realise Hannah's one of the characters. When she realise that she herself actually survived that fall and becomes a Wendigo by, if you read the literature, by eating her sister's body. It's, it gets a little bit like, huh, no, they mm. are, they're, they're the terrifying aspect of this game. Now, I don't think I was particularly terrified. I was nervous. And I think the, the best point where I was nervous was holding the controller to try not to be eaten by a Wendigo. But I think <laughs> from, from Josh's point of view, he's correct. You know, if you took the Wendigos out of this, you would end up with kind of just, you know, Josh's ravens of a madman, but actually nobody in the end being particularly under under any threat. I was disappointed when it went that direction, but the more that it played with the end game, because it, you, you do get a good chunk of the game knowing that the Wendigos are the villains, that, that Josh is no longer the villain. The more it went on, the more it didn't affect me and I actually started to appreciate it more, but when the twist mm-hmm. actually happened, I didn't enjoy it. And it, it's something that sort of won me over by the end of the game, and I actually appreciated it. However, we've got some feedback from Patrice226 on the forums, who said, I enjoyed the first part of the game, a classic teen horror with a wonderfully preposterous setup to get them to an isolated cabin. Unfortunately, halfway through the game, everything goes south, and instead of our protagonists trying to evade some sinister killer and screwing each other over, because, you know, hormones, we get some nonsense about Wendigos and Native American curses. Worse still, the reveal halfway through that one of the friends was just playing a trick rendered all of the early decision trees and QTEs totally redundant. I played through to the end, but I don't really recall much of the second half and couldn't tell you who survived in my playthrough. I lost any respect I had for the game, or its execution, at the halfway point. Another promising QTE, story-based driven game, 
with a terrible story. I guess David Cage is influencing developers after all. Sick burn. With that, I think it's important that with the twist out the way, we now discuss the ending of the game. Um, and the we mentioned already there's 256 potential variations of the ending, but they're all relatively negligible. I guess we should mention that the end of the game kind of centers around everybody who is still alive at that point gathering back in the uh, in the house, uh, in the cabin. I mean, it's not really a cabin, but um, it, gathering back in the uh, central location and the Wendigos kind of infesting that place and trying to get rid of them. Now, I'm what I don't know is uh, if you have to kind of blow up the cabin. So the way the way that my playthrough ended was I um, broke the light bulb in the in the cabin, and you can see at some point, uh, I think because a Wendigo knocks into it, that there is gas leaking out. So essentially, you flip the switch, cause a spark, and it explodes, and anybody who is still caught in the cabin is burned to death. But the Wendigos are also burned to death. Now, I'm not sure if you can get out of that without blowing up the cabin, but at that point, you have, at least in theory, already notified the authorities that something is very, very wrong here. So they are coming after you. You just kind of have to hold out until they get there. In my playthrough, Josh survived in air quotes because, um, like we discussed before, he, he became a Wendigo with his sister and presumably is out living a Wendigo life. Josh made it, Ashley made it, Chris made it, and um, Emily made it. Uh, everybody else died. 50% survival rate for me. They kind of left it open for a sequel because they bring in the idea that you can't really kill a Wendigo without its spirit getting out and being able to infest somebody else. I, I guess somebody else who is also eating people. So it's a little bit limited, but I don't think that that's necessarily what they were going for, but they could. Um, but I, I'm interested to hear how everybody else's ending went. Um, so for me, uh, the only survivors were Emily, Michael, and then Christopher. I was really annoyed with that because all the way through, I wanted Sam to live. I was like, Sam's the only one I really care about. Sam's going to live. And I tried so, so hard to keep her alive in that final bit at the end but I yeah. judded the controller ever so slightly and the Wendigo shoved yep. his fist straight through her. And I was just, oh my God, no. And then all the horrible people uh, survived. So, yay. I had Sam and Mike right up until the end, but yep, same thing happened to me. I didn't realise people weren't going to leave the cabin <laughs> within the time of that. A second time through, obviously, I, I knew what the, the parameters yeah. were, what it was asking. So yeah, I knew once I sw flipped that switch, you know, everybody would die. So don't flip the switch until I had to. I managed to get everybody out apart from Michael and Josh because his head kind of exploded by a Wendigo. But you know, I'm not counting him. What I did have was an interesting scene where the Wendigo kind of confronts Sam two or three times and is about your movements and your decisions. And I, you know, between Sam and Michael, I'd, you know, they seem to have a, a fairly decent relationship. Now, in that final one that you're talking about, where Sam was killed by a Wendigo, um, I made the same mistake. But actually, Michael stepped in and distracted, and he was killed. Oh no, that's the go. Yeah, so Michael was killed by a Wendigo in that playthrough, and actually, Sam then made her escape whilst um, Michael was being beaten by the Wendigo. So I don't know if I just happened to make different choices throughout the game that actually had that impact, because I definitely failed that choice. Well, first failed that, don't move the controller at the end, and she still got out and, and Michael you know, died for the cause. So yeah, I've never managed to, you know, to make Michael survive, unfortunately, but uh, I have now managed to get everybody else out. 
Matt and Svel from the forum said, luckily all of my characters survived, which they did because I didn't care for Josh and thought that Mike and Ashley were a sweet couple. Mostly I found that these consequences are a bit unfair, especially during the quick time events where I had to hold still. I failed many times during these, even though my hands were still. Really, finally gave up and placed my controller on the couch table when the game told me to hold still. I know I cheated, but I feel I cheated. I got cheated by the game too. The game made me suffer for my mistakes, but I never... <laughs> I never stood a real chance to make the right decisions. If I did, it was pure luck. So yeah, there's a lot of these hold the controller still moments towards the end of the game that for those that have criticised it in our feedback, it definitely had an impact. Personally, I found they were quite tense. I, I quite enjoyed the tenseness in those final scenes of having to hold the controller still with a Wendigo in your face. But it's the most brutal way to, to lose people from your party um, on a mechanic that is very, very sensitive. We have some feedback from the community. As always, you can leave feedback for future podcasts at canonrince.com slash forum, or you can email in at podcast at canonrince.com. So we have the final piece of feedback from Matt Unsvel, who said, As a fan of horror movies, I like how the game is soaked up with its cliches, although I find the ending with these zombie creatures from The Descent a bit lazy and cheap. But still, I think the characters were well written, and I had a thing for Sam. Until Dawn's graphics were a blast and the camera angle sometimes reminded me of the Resident Evil remake on the GameCube. Until Dawn is almost just a very appealing tech demo for me. The game is fun and I would recommend it anyone to try out, but for me it really, really doesn't have any replay value. Mechna said, From a pure technical achievement point of view, Until Dawn certainly hits the ball out of the park. The 3D motion capture on display here is pretty graphically astounding, like a high-end CGI movie. It reminds me of 90s FMV games in a way, albeit with far better acting. Some of the facial animations, though, isn't quite fully there yet. Some of the playful smiles just end up looking like creepy dolls dead in the eyes. That's just Remy Malik. From the gameplay point of view, it's definitely not a hardcore thing, more along the lines of Heavy Rain and the Telltale Adventures, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's nice to just experience a story with minimal player input. The story was pretty good in that late 80s, mid-90s cheesy slasher horror way. Not to be taken seriously at all. It's worth getting a group of friends together and experiencing this as you would a movie. The fact that it's easy to take the mick out of it makes it more fun to play, and the cheap jump scares will leave you and your friends having a gay old time. The voice acting and general performances from the actors is competent, and most of the characters I found likeable, even if they are all typical cookie-cutter teen movie roles. It was nice to have girls fairly well represented too. Sam was likeable and reasonably strong as a female protagonist. I can categorically say that I will never play Until Dawn again. There's just no replay value. But I can recommend one, and I mean one, playthrough. After that, burn it in the fires of hell. I have to say, I really enjoyed my second playthrough. Um, you know, I made different decisions, and you know, it's good to see like, how how things would play out if you lost people the first time around, because there are entire scenes that do not play out if you happen to lose characters early on. I understand where it's coming from, because there's a lot of things that repeat and and can probably feel drawn out if you're playing it a second time. Mm. But personally, I, I do, I understand, but I disagree. <laughs> but but I also, I don't have um, such love invested. You know, I, I still mm. to this day refuse to, to play The Walking Dead again because oh, I have God, no. such, such emotional reaction to that game um, towards the end that I just feel like any choice I make now will be, you know, it will just feel like against my initial playthrough. Here, the character's so kind of just slurky fun. It's, 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 
it's designed for you to kind of either get really kind of fun and start just popping people off left, right and center for the enjoyment of it, or actually trying to see if you can survive this, this horror movie. I, I think it's, it's more designed as a replay, uh, replayable story driven game than, than a lot of that have passed before it. I mean, I, th- I think it's a case that the impact is lost um, that for that one playthrough where you don't know what's coming, it does ride quite high. And I, I personally appreciate that. I don't factor replay value into my games purchases or my games plays. Like if I get one really great experience from playing a game, I am happy. I don't need any more. I personally also, I don't see the cookie cutter teen movie roles as a negative because it's something that I can relate to the genre. But I do disagree with finding the characters likable. I mean, it's cool that they did. Personally, I didn't like any of them that much. It was choosing the best from a bad bunch, which were Ashley and Emily. Another piece from STV Norman. He said, I'm a sucker for Fortiana, but the Wendigo rubbish ruined the second half of this for me. I'm glad I played it though. If for nothing more than the kick in the teeth, see it all coming for horror fans like me. Deacon05OC said, Until Dawn was one of my biggest gaming surprises. I bought it on release day and finished it hours later because I was completely captivated. I loved the way it presented its horror movie tropes and that there were more truly gut-wrenching moments. Although I loved the archetypal characters, especially Mike who you hate at the beginning and actually has a bit of an arc by the time that it ends. The first time I played it, I had all the girls survive until I misjudged something and then lost someone right at the end. I still need to go back and have everyone survive and also want to see what happens when everyone dies. I just wish the game let you make multiple saves. It's not a short game. <laughs> it, it lasts a relatively long amount of time. Papa Juppé 13 on the forum said, I'm a horror movie geek and I have been since I was a kid. I'm also a horror movie snob. I do not judge other folks for what horrors they enjoy, but for me personally, 95% of horror movies released are just garbage. Hot garbage. I looked into Until Dawn until it was released and quickly wrote it off. It just looked stupid, like everything I hate in horror movies. But the day it came out, I started seeing amazing word of mouth from actual gamers actually playing the game. So I took a chance, and like the poster above me, it became one of the biggest and best surprises for me ever. I absolutely love the game. It's tense and exciting, and the characters are great. I'm usually not a fan of these adventure-type games where you, you watch more than you play, but it works perfectly fine here. I played the game twice through in the week between its release and the release of Metal Gear Solid 5. I played through it with a group of friends around Halloween that year and it has become a Halloween tradition. I love this game. One of the games that helped make 2015 the greatest year in gaming ever. Well, until the first half of 2017 hit. Tadinho said, Until Dawn was a game that I was really looking forward to given all the buzz around it and the claims that it was finally a David Cage game done right. And when I got around to playing it, the game did not disappoint. But what really impressed me wasn't the major earth-shattering decisions, usually advertised to have major consequences, but the smaller, seemingly inconsequential choices that actually changed the game in unexpected ways and how the game was masterful in playing with the player's expectations. In conclusion, Until Dawn is a fantastic game that knows exactly what it wants to be and executes it nearly without flaw. It's also a great example of gameplay and narrative complementing each other perfectly. It's a game I've replayed multiple times and it only made me like it more. To me, this set a new bar for interactive story games. Sure, you can say that The Walking Dead has a better story, but as a game, Until Dawn is unrivaled, and I hope its success pushes the Zora to evolve, especially given Telltale's stagnation in the eyes of many. Toki from the forum said, I've played this through with my wife and we thoroughly enjoyed it. The graphical fidelity helped sell the atmosphere exceptionally well and the hammy acting was enjoyable for us. Some of the choices that led to deaths felt a bit arbitrary, certainly in the case of Matthew, but we didn't actually care for any one character enough to mind them biting the dust. 
the mixing up of and switching between horror genres did feel slightly off-putting in terms of the introduction of the supernatural elements, but overall it left us contented. I think that's a good point that none of the characters are actually that likeable enough that you're devastated when they go. Minor Willie said, I played Until Dawn for the first time about 18 months ago, and whilst I enjoyed it a lot, I always envisaged that I would be leaving it a few years before coming back again, so that as much of the story has faded away from memory as possible, as it immediately struck me as a game which was unlikely to have much replay value. The buzz the game has been getting since being given away on PS Plus, coupled with its placement on this podcast, encouraged me to give it another go, and I just finished my second playthrough. Whilst the plot twists obviously don't carry anywhere near as much weight the second time around, the core game still stands up. I'm a self-confessed abject coward, and the jumps and shocks in the game were extremely effective at getting the reaction that they were looking for. Playing the game on my own in my creaky old flat with the lights off and the sound up took at least six years off my life. Production-wise, this game is as good as it gets. The writing, the acting, the motion capture and pure graphics are all worthy of what they're attempting to emulate mid-budget teen slasher horror. I disliked most of the characters, but was distinctly aware that I was supposed to be disliking them. Sam seemed like the only decent person amongst them, or maybe I think that's because I always fancied the cheerleader. When push came to shove, I felt gutted on both playthroughs when I lost any of them. Ashley may have been slightly annoying, but I didn't want to see the poor girl brutally decapitated in front of me. My first go-round I only lost Josh and Mikey, and both the stupid mistakes that I repeated this time. I've got my next go penciled in for Halloween 2018 and I'm determined to save them all that time. Thanks very much. So we've got a bunch of three-word reviews for this issue as well. As always, we'll put them out the day of recording, uh, which you can see if you follow the Twitter feed, at Kane and Rince. Starting with Josh. Alistair Stewart says, impressive, nasty fun. Rusty Rooster says, make your choice. That's a Saw reference. Eric Jones says, just hold still. Hamish, remember, don't move. Chip Noir says mistakes were made. Pope Formosus says Mike's John McLean. Kisses Fingers says Peter Goddamn Stormer. Nick Passati. Choice actually matters. Big Salad 87. I love that name. Uh, well told story. Transfem Fatale says Emily is queen. I agree with that. <laughs> Chimachanga Jones said. Uncanny Valley much? Josh Nicholas. Uh, immersive action fun. James Phyllis says, beware, jump scare. Aaron Hockdahl. Didn't expect Wendigos. Andrew Brown. Kill them all. Spencer Saunders. Fun. Fear. Fire. John Solomon. Not the finger. Shawnee Boy said, very long slasher. Sean of Saviour Lucio. David Cage. Jealous. The Norman Nerd. Better David Cage. Louis Filiatro says, deserves being copied. And Not Penny's Boat says, subverted my expectations. So, with that, it's time for us to wrap up our summaries of the game. First up, Leah. I paid full price for this game when I purchased it with my PS4, and uh, I do not regret that. I know that it's been much cheaper in recent years and free on PS Plus, but um, I... Uh, as a reason to buy a console, um, I, I mean, now there are so many things that that could be. But at the time, this was something that I really wanted, and it stood up to what I was expecting out of it. Uh, I enjoyed the silliness of the story. I enjoyed a lot the fact that it 
made itself the game version of ridiculous slasher movies that I have have loved for so long. And I, I thought it did a really good job in that respect. Uh, it's not best story you'll ever feel uh, that that a game has given to you. But uh, I think that it really works at what it wants to do. And uh, I, I, I've watched other people play through. I've played through myself. And um, I, I think I would like to see another not necessarily another Until Dawn, but I would love to see another game like this, uh, just because I think that it's a rare thing to have something that takes this genre and makes it feel like it does in the movies. It doesn't feel like a movie. Uh, well, it kind of does in some places, but it feel it gives you the same feeling in a game that you would get in the same kind of movie. And I, I don't think that many games can pull that off. So I definitely re- recommend uh, Until Dawn, particularly if you picked it up as part of PS Plus. Uh, it is definitely worth uh, at least one playthrough. And um, if you like that genre, uh, you could uh, you could definitely do a lot worse. Josh. One thing that I didn't mention during the podcast is that I played through um, Until Dawn with my girlfriend Kat, and um, I like for me that this is that's the best way to play Until Dawn with somebody else. It's the per- perfect kind of non non co op co op game um, because it's a it's because it's not as serious as uh, Walking Dead or as kind of just because it's so silly and so and campy and fun it is a lot of fun to kind of laugh along with it um get tense and scared along with it with somebody else kind of making decisions with you and yeah it's 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 a fun experience to play with somebody else I, yeah, and I, I just think Untold Dawn really successfully captures what uh, what it's going for Overall, I think this game is just good. Like, it's a very good game. I don't consider it to be, you know, among the great uh, adventure games. Like, I, it's, it hasn't left an impression on me the way The Walking Dead did or even um, Tales from the Borderlands did. Um, but, like, it's definitely a really successful piece of, of schlocky horror, and I think it has some of the best uh, visual presentation of any game you're going to pick up on the PS for so recommended from me definitely agree with josh when he says that the 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 visual presentation of horror is incredibly strong in this game and it's something that i appreciated all the more because the game didn't take itself too seriously in that genre it got the right people involved to write the right kind of horror and this is where other adventure games uh heavy rain a prime example fell completely short for me is that it didn't have the right people leading that genre um and it felt a little bit lost whereas this revels in it it's not the greatest script but it absolutely holds apart a teen horror which is exactly what you're going for um i don't think it's the strongest narrative driven game of this generation i would that that would be the walking dead season one which is available on ps4 but if you want a narrative driven horror then absolutely Until Dawn is the one to go for. It's very well presented. It doesn't matter if you find no replay value to it, in my opinion, because that one playthrough is more than good enough uh, to be worth your time if you picked it up on PS Plus or your money and your time if you've actually bought it, which I would recommend doing if, if you've missed the PS Plus deal. Um, and it's something that I very much enjoyed. And again, 
to to mimic what Josh said, I thoroughly enjoyed playing this as an on-couch co-op game. I played it with Tony, and I thought that that really benefited the experience um, and, and something that I would recommend to anyone. And it is the way I've recommended it to several people since I played it. And it's a game I've recommended several times. The production value of it is at times just staggeringly beautiful and i can't wait to see what supermassive games next game is i hope it is again along the lines of what we've seen with until dawn um i'm more than ready to play another game of this ilk how about yourself tony it's funny actually when you look at someone like supermassive games that you know when you look at their previous output a lot of it's been the move content um there's no real kind of lead up and how they would go on to make a game like this. It just shows you sometimes you just need a, you know the right people on the right project. And I, yeah, I do wonder because this kind of screams high production values, but at the same time, like Sony were obviously very cautious about its prospects in the market. Um, you know, and, and times maybe not pushing it as hard as I would like to see. And it and it's weird because I don't I didn't ever really find this game you know horror as in oh man I'm completely scared and frightened by what's being shown on screen. But you know. It's a fun co-op game and, and we had kind of some jokes about, you know, who survived and who didn't. I've actually played half the game with uh, Liz, my wife, and she definitely found it to be a horrifying experience. She uh, she bailed halfway through <laughs> and was jumping at every single thing that would go on the screen. So the, the kind of jump scares that weren't necessarily affected on me were affected on her. So it gave me another aspect of actually, you know, this game could be scary in, in, in the right hands of who's playing it. But for me, I just think it sets its stall out. It's you know it wants to be this teen horror um, drama, and um, I think that it hits it. It hits that story beat perfectly. Um, it's fun. It made me laugh. It never made me cry, but it certainly made me laugh, and it put a big smile on my face. Um, I don't think it outstays its welcome either. Um, I don't entirely buy the entirety of the plot. Like the Wendigos, for me, are a little of a, a bit of a miss, but also I understand narratively why they're there. So for me, I really enjoyed my experience of it. I think it is a great kind of couch co-op game. I, I understand why streamers like it. It's well presented. Um, I'm really interested where Supermassive Games um, take take the tech in the future or Sony take the tech in the future because I think it's got legs. But yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things. The right people were put in in place on the right project and it, it made something fun. It won't be. It won't go down in the lexicon of the greatest games ever because I. I think it's kind of sets its stall out not to be that. But for what it is, it's a really good, fun riot. And uh, yeah, for me, definitely recommended. If if you've got it free, then then absolutely play it. Um, and I think you'll probably stick along for the ride where a lot of them, you know, people fall off. So for me, great fun. Um, definitely recommended. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And with that, thanks to Tony, Josh, and Leah for joining me on this episode for Until Dawn. And remember, if you've enjoyed this and other shows, please consider hidden to our Patreon page and donating the minimum of a dollar per month. If enough of you do this, we will make double the a number of Ken Ridge shows per year. Next time in issue 281, we cut some ships to chipsel tunes in Terry Kavanagh's smash indie hit Super Hexagon. <laughs>